0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
1: Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. It is the Monday After the Heisman Trophy ceremony, Lamar Jackson is your Heisman Trophy winner. And who better to talk about this than the world's leading Heisman authority from ESPN, Joe Tessitore. What's up, guys? Yeah, what's going on? It's a Monday where I can actually breathe is what's
2: going on. I don't have to prep for a game and nonstop Heisman ballots coming into my inbox. So that's always nice. How are you guys?
3: We're doing good. We're, doing, we're trying to catch our breath amid all the coaching carousel stuff and everything else that's going on. But uh, I don't know. This is an interesting time of the season where you kind of downshift from everything that got you to the playoffs and now all the craziness that happens off the field.
1: I'm not going to lie. It was nice to wake up Saturday morning and not have to rush to do anything. Um, that's why we. it's cool we get this little break in the action, not that there isn't some news happening. Uh, in terms of the Heisman, Joe – Do you feel the same way I do? Just a very weird year in the way it all turned out.
2: Definitely, Sue. I felt that way for a long time, even when we had, you know, Lamar doing what he was doing in October and the first half of November, uh, where, you know, you did feel like, oh, okay, we got a pretty clear-cut guy here, and it looks like he's having a Heisman season, because then it didn't look like he was having a Heisman season. Then nothing that we know and all these, you know, all these uh, pillars of Heismanology that I put forth all the time. They it, it didn't feel as sturdy. And then, but then you didn't really have anybody stepping up at the right time. And then you had all this hard to fill out your ballot and third or second. And which way do you go? And, and then they handed me the results, you know, moments before they opened the envelope. And I glanced at them and, it was everybody what I thought it would be with this ridiculous, widespread voting between third and this tie for tenth that I'm looking down at right now on the list. So yeah, it, it didn't it didn't seem like a normal year at all.
3: Joe, let me ask you this: um, you're a voter, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your ballot like?
2: Um, players appeared on my ballot that weren't in New York. Um, I never revealed. You my never ballot. reveal. Bruce. No, i i don't feel my ballot um, okay
3: let me ask you this but i will
2: say that i'm comfortable enough of saying that i and i i take part of my own polling throughout the season and obviously i talked to the two of you for so many years about this so i, I think you know we tend to be um clearly probably a, a little more informed than the masses in the electorate and we probably take it a little more seriously than, than most but um, I know that was the case for a lot of the year, where I was putting names on my ballot that was then included in my polling that were not really conforming to what was ending up towards the top of of Heismanology every week. And I can I will just say that there, uh that my ballot is not aligned with what the front row in New York was.
3: Okay, so what was to you when you look at the 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 ten finalists or the 10 not ten finalists. The the top ten was the biggest surprise to you
2: the biggest surprise to me was players that I feel strongly were the most outstanding players in college football this year didn't appear there and that um, that if you are going to support certain players on this list then how couldn't you possibly support others uh, i.e. Jonathan Allen, who finished seventh, Ruben Foster, who does not appear among these top 11 players that were handed to us by Deloitte, and Adoree Jackson, who does not appear on this list. That if you're going to make an argument and support some, how would that not then be applicable to others?
1: And I think that gets to, to Jabril Peppers, how he finished, you know, and he finished fifth. He's a Heisman finalist. Why, In your mind, and we talked about this a little bit last week, how did he end up that high relative to, like you said, Jonathan Allen, Reuben Foster, other really notable defensive players this season?
2: Because he had a campaign that was far more similar to the campaigns of yesteryear. He had a campaign that is, I always use Tim Brown as the the poster child of the way the Heisman used to be. And we still had a smattering of that in our more recent generation of Heisman winners, but we tend tend to lose that kind of a candidate. And I do believe that Jabril Peppers had a campaign of yesteryear that was built on brand name, attention, eyeballs, promotion, status, um, program, um television viewership, I think Jabril Peppers is an outstanding football player, but I think his Heisman campaign was not in a, aligned with the modern day, more heavily scrutinized, more purely merit based and really voters in the know with the current situation week to week of college football. I think if I presented to you a candidate with his stats and with what the team ended up doing and then not playing on championship weekend. And it wasn't the brand name of Michigan with the level of promotion that Michigan received all offseason through the year. Remember, Michigan also didn't have a clear-cut offensive superstar. So every ABC and ESPN promotion for their game, every pregame article was built around the Harbaugh angle, and the do-it-all star of Jabril Peppers. And that's what we used to do a lot of in college football during the snail mail era of Heisman voting. Would, would you guys not agree with my assessment on that?
1: Oh, I've been saying, and it sounds like it aligns with what you're saying, is that I feel like he was probably— because I saw the, the, the regional breakdown, and I, I was like, how did he even do as well as he did? He, he, his main support came in the mid-Atlantic states— and so that made mm-hmm. me think, huh, where's the highest proportion probably, I not mean to generalize too much, of, the kind of exactly the kind of voters you're talking about. They've been, you know, college football maybe peaked for them in 1987. Huh. New York, you know, the, yeah. the, the people at the national outlets in New York who aren't necessarily out on the ground covering college football.
2: Listen, I, I have no problem saying this, too, and I'd love your guys' reaction to this. Um, because I had said it to the, the folks, I, I think the world of, of the Heisman Trust and what they have done of, of keeping and growing the singular most recognizable trophy in American sports and the good that they do of us having something that is that grand and plays the role it does in our sport. But the system of the electorate is based on also the way America used to be of local print media, both for your promotion, publicity, and your relevancy and awareness of players and programs. 929 making up the electorate is far too many and does not reflect and give you the best possible pure outcome. That is not how college football is covered anymore. We we are not covering college football with local beat reporters in Montana and Kansas and upstate New York and New Hampshire and northern Minnesota reaching the audiences the way we needed them to generationally just two generations ago. But the electorate hasn't changed. What you have, and, and to not be totally glad at Wellingham in saying this, are, I would say, 100 to 150 to 200 max you know, connectors and mavens of the sport that is covered nationally. The two of you are among them all the broadcasters at the various networks are among them even producers at those networks, internet writers, and a few and some key beat reporters in some major college football cities, whether it's saying, listen, the folks down at AL.com do an outstanding job, of course, and they're in the know, or whether it's, you know, the Austin paper or or Atlanta or LA, but the, the 929 is far too big of a number. And what it does is it then
3: mutes
2: and counterbalances what would be a, a fairer and more representative vote of the 150 to 200 connectors and influencers of the sports, so-called intelligentsia of college football?
1: Are you saying you think that beat writers of the Minnesota Gophers or the Purdue Boilermakers, what, should not have a vote for the Heisman?
2: No, I, I think. Listen, if you I, I, that's that's not it. But that's not what's making up this electorate. If you went through this electorate. It, that's not strictly what you're seeing. To get to that number of 929, Stu, it, it's stretching even further than that. It's not just that crowd.
1: Yeah, I remember once talking to a guy, uh, somebody who said the hockey writer at their paper had a vote. Uh, a yeah. lot of times these ballots, once you get one, you, you never lose it.
3: Yeah, I had a friend who was really an NFL media member, and he would watch like one college game a year. And I remember, and this is going way back. But there was a, a game where he saw somebody have like a long catch and a long kick return, and he voted him first for the Heisman. I think I don't remember like the voting on that, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the only first place vote that player got. Uh, well, so- to that
2: point, and let's just say there are a, a group of voters like that that they touch upon the sport and they understand the sport, and their local paper has had a Heisman vote for years, and they're the ones filling out that ballot. Um, when you ask about Gabriel Peppers. A player who is showing up in in promotion for the big ABC game on that given week, and his name comes across the screen. When you talk about level of awareness, what is the level of awareness for Jabril Peppers compared to the level of awareness of Ruben Foster?
3: Well, let me ask you this, Joe. I mean, you're as plugged into the Heisman scene as any national media member, certainly. We're talking about some of the quote-unquote ills of of the Heisman electorate. Do you think there will be any impetus on the people who run the Heisman to pare down the the, the voters and and take it from almost a thousand to to two hundred? I mean, that's a that's a huge. Cut. I don't know
2: about two hundred, but I think that these are very smart people who operate the Heisman uh, trophy and trust, and it's in their hands. Who would always have a willingness to say what makes for the best award and how can we do this better and do we need to change with the times. Now, the one thing I will tell you I think they will never do is I don't think they will alter uh, history. I think that they will not alter necessarily uh, um, how it's voted for and how you win when it comes to, you know, the three places on the ballots and the point total and, and you know, they want to be able to compete to make historical comparisons and have have those thresholds of significance. But I do think they would examine if, you know, the electorate is too big or if they feel like uh, some of the electorate is not as qualified or it doesn't fit the standard and criteria of what once was. I do think they would look at that.
3: One of the things I noticed on social media after the vote came out, uh, there was a lot of people, especially, obviously, Florida State fans, who are kind of stunned and dismayed that Dalvin Cook only finished in a tie for 10th. Now I think Dalvin Cook's certainly one of the five or six best players in college football. I think a couple of things happened here though. First of all, when you have the guy who finishes first and the guy who finishes second in your, in your conference,
2: that's it.
3: Yeah. That's going to take a lot of the potential votes away from you. And I think that was as big a reason as any that that happened. Is that the explanation? Or do you think some people looked and goes, well, Yes, he played against tougher defenses than Deontay Foreman. But when I look at the raw numbers, Deontay Foreman averaged 50 rushing yards more per game. So if we're going to vote for a running back, I mean, what, why do you think were the biggest reasons why Dalvin Cook only finished 10th? Sue,
1: so
2: what do you think it is?
1: I think in the Heisman, you've got to be playing in meaningful games at the end of the season. And Florida State got eliminated from anything. Well, conference- Lamar
3: wasn't playing in meaningful games, though. Lamar,
1: though, had built such a, you know, I would guess maybe a, the better way to put it is to make a late run in the Heisman. You've got to be playing in big games at the end of the year. The guys that got invited to New York um, all were. You know, Dalvin Cook was not. Christian McCaffrey was not. You know, how do you catch the, the the pack that has Jackson, Watson, Baker Mayfield, who was playing for a Big 12 title the last weekend of the season? How do you catch those guys if you're playing in, you know, frankly, the Florida State Florida game this year was not that big a deal?
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that. Now, I also will agree with your statement that I do believe Dalvin Cook to be one of the four or five most outstanding players in college football. I also think the guy was uh, incredibly unselfish in his role on that team. I think he was outstanding for many reasons as a pass catcher, as a pass blocker, as a leader on that team, but sort of being the heart and soul and grit of that team. But when I watched games, I knew Dalvin Cook was on the field, and that's where I was drawn. You know, my, uh, my attention was drawn to Dalvin Cook, and he was sensational. Uh, I do think having the two headline-making ACC quarterbacks was a factor because Jackson and Watson took a lot of the oxygen – of the room of this heisman race when you look through these ballots it is jackson and watson one two and then there's a massive gap and then everybody from three to ten and this is one of the things you know they give me they don't give me a lot of time after that envelope is open where you know the and the speech went long the other day so i even got you know i got cut on time there as i was trying to get stuff out but one of the things as soon as I looked down, because I had sensed this when I was looking at the ballots in the weeks leading up to it, I don't know if you guys remember, but about four weeks ago, I was, when I was putting forth all the Heismanology stuff, I said, we have 16 names showing up. It's November. That's not normal. We typically funnel it down at this point. So maybe seven names that are getting a majority. We, we had 16 names. Then we still have 15 names. We have 14 names. We had 15 names. And I had a feeling that between, um, number three or four, all the way down, it was going to be bunched up. And then they handed me, you know, the guy from Deloitte allows me to open up the envelope with the results as the other envelope is being opened up. And I got that time, you know, digest it. I'm right before I can open that up and I'm sitting there and I look down and that's exactly what it was. All these point totals right down from Baker Mayfield to Dalvin cook. It was a very small spread. It was the smallest spread from three down to this tie down to 11 that we've had in 17 years. That's how small – like, everybody was bunched up. So they either could have had a five-person front row, an 11-person front row, or a two-person front row. Like, I mean, it was, everybody was bunched up there, and Dalvin Cook got caught into that bunch-up where he was just getting a – he was getting third-place votes because Jackson and Watson were getting so many right. first and second.
3: So I just noticed on social media that uh, ESPN got a 1.7 overnight rating for the Heisman which according to this yeah. Richard Deitch tweet is the least viewed Heisman show ever. Is that, you think, a moral reflection of...
1: I can't believe you're bringing this up to the guy who was on this show. <laughs> no, that doesn't well, bother me all at yeah, all. It's all like,
2: well, yeah, it's not like... It is, I what, mean, I it is, it
1: is what it is. It's I'm going to you
2: names. You give me Q rating. So you give me mainstream popularity and Q rating. Uh, just or say it, think about this it. in your head when I list off these names. A show that has... Tim Tebow in it, a show that has Tim Tebow, Colt McCoy, Sam Bradford, a show that has Tim Tebow, Mark Ingram, Andrew Luck, Cam Newton, Andrew Luck, RG3, Johnny Manzella and Manti Teo coming off, you know, that fiasco, right? Janus Winston, Mariota, um, Christian McCaffrey, like, think of the headline-making superstar names now of 10 years of Heisman shows. And then think of the names we just had in the front row. I just don't think it, it had it all good players, all great. But at the end of the day, I don't know. Now, a year from now, those same players show up. Will Lamar Jackson now established? Maybe. But I think we've had superstars sitting in the front row, like established stars in that front row for about 10 years.
1: My theory, as I just tweeted, and as I think we talked about on this podcast exactly a year ago, Ever since three years ago, I believe, when the Heisman did a big crackdown on reporters writing about their ballots before the announcement, ratings have gone down every year. And I say, you know, it used to be that in the week leading up to the ceremony, everybody wrote a column about here's how I voted and here's why. And it built up interest in the ceremony and that guy, stiff arm trophy would tabulate the results. And by the way, if he was doing that this year, people would have thought maybe Deshaun Watson has a chance. Um... To nothing. They announced the finalists on Monday, and then it's just you read nothing about the Heisman until the ceremony. I think it's been, I understand why they want to do it that way for the suspense, but I think it's actually killed interest in the show.
2: That's, that's a valid point. And, you know, I can remember that year. Um, the three of us, I think, we talked a lot about it that week when they were asking nobody can reveal it, so, you know, not going to have any of that. And I think I may have said to you, Bruce, or to you, Stu, I remember saying, so you're telling me, that for the general election for president of the United States, we can do daily polling, <laughs> it yeah. like, you know, the decimal point, and have electoral college maps, you know, with polling, and we can have advanced numbers in. But for the Heisman Trophy, we're going to have a, you know, a mandate that we can. So um, hey, yes, I can understand that.
3: Hey, uh, just to 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 take issue with Stu, making me throw this at you, t- uh, Joe. Look, Joe, if it was up to me and I produced it, I'd have more Joe Tess, not as much Tim, and I think, I think the ratings would have skyrocketed. Um, oh,
2: you're nice. Listen, I cover it as, as competitive sport. Like, I cover the, the election, the electorate as competitive sport. The rest of the show is a really beautiful You done, are
3: John King.
2: Yes, I right, understood right.
3: Um,
2: um, so obviously when, I get into that side of it far more, but I do understand the other way of presenting
3: Before we get into you're going to be doing uh, announcing one of the playoff games, I did want to throw one thing at you. Uh, I'm sitting there watching it at the end, and I was like, "Whoa, Johnny's there!" Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It was just like
1: I had the same reaction.
2: It
3: was just I had the
2: same reaction too when he walked up to me 20 minutes before we went on the air.
3: What was the vibe when he shows up there? I mean, I haven't talked to like him in probably about 18 months, and I was curious if I would like I've covered the Heisman a bunch of times in the last you know five or six years it's kind of uh, a little bit surreal seeing him at things that are quote normal now.
2: Very much so. And it's and funny you bring that up Bruce, because I, I thought that that was interestingly the one thing that was buzzing there this weekend. So, you know, e- even so much so that, you know, my wife said to me, um, Saturday, she said, geez, I just saw his TMZ or the Post or something, and he's out, you know, out till late in the morning in Miami and this and that, $35,000 bar class here, you know, Jack Daniels swinging out of the bed, boom, 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 and then I'm sitting there about 20 minutes before we go on air, and I mean, that those first two or three rows, that is a living hall of fame. I mean, that when you are there pre-show and you walk from behind the stage out there, it, it is pretty amazing. You turn one direction who you're seeing, you turn another direction. And all of a sudden I see a guy walking towards me who it took me a half a second for it to register. And he likes to me and obviously we all three of us have known Johnny for a long time. we covered him extensively and spent a lot of time with him, but he doesn't quite look like the Johnny Manziel that we covered day in and day out. But I was very happy to see him. And shook my hand and said, hello, and how are you doing? And I said, it's really nice to see you here. I'm glad you're here, and I hope that this is the start of seeing you for many, many years to come uh, because of just going from covering him as an athlete, and then he gives way to what became the drama of his life. But I wasn't there with him during those years of covering during those years. You know, this is a friendly face from – not that long ago, but still a more recent past of our lives as broadcasters and writers who, you know, um, we're fond of and, you know, what he's been through. So I hope this is a, a, you know, something where he's on his feet and heading towards, hey, I can put a suit on, I can be part of a, a normal function and, and, and represent this fraternity.
1: I just pictured the whoever's in charge of the RSVP is getting that RSVP back and going, Really? Uh-oh. Yeah,
2: well then I also saw <laughs> on social media hanging out with Lamar Jackson in his hotel room and doing bicep curls with his uh, with his Heisman Trophy, so never ceases to amaze.
1: So yeah, we wanted to ask you uh, before we go, you know, you're going to be calling the Alabama-Washington Peach Bowl College Football Playoff Semifinal. Right. There was a void there when Brad Nessler left for CBS, and we were all very pleased that they gave you that assignment. Do you approach it the same as you would a game on a Saturday or is there more that goes into what will be one of the most viewed games, obviously, of the year?
2: I'm not going to give you coach speak on this one, Stu. (laughs) I am not treating it like it is any other game on a Saturday. Um, Obviously, at our network, uh, there are only a few broadcasts that are at this championship level with the whole country. Um, uh, You know, we've got three of them when it comes to the college football playoff and the national championship, you know, the NBA finals. Um, but it's special. It's very special. And, you know, I've been digging in, you know, last week a little distracted with Heisman, but still dug in pretty good. And from here through the next two weeks, my life is Alabama and all things Washington. And I'm thrilled. And if I can just stay out of Todd Blackledge and Holly Rose way, uh, we will have a really good broadcast.
3: Joe, by virtue of you, and I, I want to say part of the things that have led to your, I'll call it meteoric rise as the preeminent college play-by-play guy out there, uh, in addition to your work on the great uh, EA Sports video boxing game, uh, I would say <laughs> it was a lot of the work you did on Friday nights, and there was a lot of Boise State stuff. Um, I'm not yeah. sure anybody seems to be more connected to Chris Peterson. So, yeah. does by virtue of having you and Chris Peterson in the same place portend some fireworks for us in the Peach Bowl that night, you think? You know,
2: it's, it's funny you say that because uh, somebody was interviewing me last week about uh, preparing for this game, and you know, they associate me so much because of so much of my career being attached to the SEC and Alabama and all the Alabama shows and games and SEC Nation, and of course I know Alabama inside out, but... I, you know, I have covered and been with Chris Peterson because all those undefeated Boise State teams and the ride up of Boise State, whether it was on Friday nights or Saturdays, um, I seemingly was the one doing those games, uh, including the all-time classic with Kaepernick on that Thanksgiving weekend. But even prior to that, so many of the games they played on Friday night, even some of the games they played on Saturday, so... You know, I know all three of us have known him for a long time, but yeah i I have sat in more coaches' meetings with with Coach Pete than probably any other coach, so i'm looking forward to it happening now in this setting at this level, and there are interestingly enough, I think a lot of similarities between the spot he 's in now and many of the spots he will be in. Come December 31st. I think it matches up much the same.
1: He's been known to clam up a quite a bit, not clam up, but go into kind of radio silence right before the games. What are those coaches meetings like?
2: He's always been very guarded with that. But yeah. too, I think, uh, and that, you know, and Rod Gilmore was with me for many of those years. And Rod developed such a trusting relationship with that staff that he would be really honest with us. He, he is honest. Now he is a, You know, he's a tight football coach ready for things, but he is honest and gives you a a fair answer. Um, uh, You know, is it funny that we're talking about Chris Peterson in certain ways only because he's playing against Nick Saban? Because, like, when we're going to write the 25-year kind of look of, of this generation at college football. How far down the list do we go before you, you say the name Chris Peterson in terms of greatest college football coaches? You're yeah, not that far, right?
1: No, he's. I mean, I know
2: we're saving this, but we're not dipping that far down the list. Top Our six?
3: Game. Top seven?
2: Oh, I think easily, right? I think, you know, you got Nick and you got Urban, and we, we understand that, but, you know, Chris is right there, and, you know, and, and Gary's not that far below him there in terms of what. Accomplished over the last 25 years. Uh, so we will be ready for this. And I also think when I say there are a lot of similarities to what I remember from those Boise days, do you remember when he would get into spots like this? How many different formations? How many different personnel groups? How many different trick plays? How many exotic things? And how much would be thrown at an opposing defensive coordinator within the first 20 plays? Do you remember what those games looked like, whether it was those... The opening weekend games against big-time programs or the BCS bowls or showdown bowls, it was just brilliant.
1: Well, you know, our friend Lindsey Schnell at Sports Illustrated has a great oral history of the uh, Oklahoma-Boise State Fiesta Bowl in the most recent issue. And you forget, or at least I forgot, that they just came out and took it to them. I mean, it was 28-10 Boise in that game where Boise was the heavy underdog, mm-hmm. then to exactly what you said. I mean, just caught them completely flat-footed. Oklahoma was still the more talented team, and they came back and probably should have won it, frankly, after the pick six. But uh, such crazy things happened at the end of the game there. So, yeah, I mean, we've seen it. We've seen them on this stage. And so I don't want to count him out. But obviously Alabama, heavy favorite in this game. And just to me, a bad matchup for Washington, but that's why we play these games.
2: So I'm very curious. On first yeah. glance, what's the one thing to you that makes it a really bad matchup?
1: Uh, the matchup of Washington's offensive line against Alabama's defensive front, because I don't think they've done a great job protecting Browning against the better defenses they faced. I
2: don't disagree with that, and I think the but I think the one thing that can be accomplished is then. Don't play into that. Then don't make that where the game is won or lost. And I think the way you do that is exactly with the kind of talent they have, which to me is extremely fast in space, either down the field over the top with John Ross or getting Gaskin and McClatcher and Pettis. And everything out on the perimeter in space so that the front seven does not play as big of a role in this game as it normally would.
3: Do you guys think that the way Jake Browning has played down the stretch, first against USC and then most recently against a veteran Colorado defense in the Pac-12 title game... Is the reason why you're like, oh, I don't know if he's ready for this. You know, if he played like he did in the first two months of the season, I would probably give them a little better chance. But I'm kind of, I don't want to say lost faith, but, you know, he just has looked off. And he, I mean, I don't know. Am I reading too much into those two performances? No, I think
2: that's exactly correct. And I think the rest, I think these weeks off is necessary. And um, I also think hitting the weight room and getting a little more sturdiness on that six-foot-two frame that's just over 200 pounds is necessary uh, in the coming years because I think that started to show up as the season went along. But I'll give you two instances where it really revealed itself to me, guys, and that was the first play of the Pac-12 championship game, which was the pass interference. Uh, they were going left to right on the left side of the screen. Remember, he threw it up due to John Ross, and the safety came over to help, and they everybody collided. I think that was an underthrown ball that caused pass interference. And then before the half, when they were going right to left, Ross had his man beat again, and there was an underthrow of what would have been a hit. And what, and the concern I would have, Bruce, is has he is he rested and freshened up that arm, and has does he have his legs underneath him now where he can get that ball down the field and throw it early? Don't don't have to see John Ross open yet, just trust that this guy is a real four three guy and put that ball down the field early and let it happen. Let him run underneath it because right now, I think Ross is waiting on some underthrows here
1: well, as I say many times, the bowl game is a month after the season ends. Jake Browning could come out and and play like you know his best game of the year for all we know uh or it could be forty five nothing Alabama. you never know what's going to happen in the semifinal bowl game so um, I look forward to it Bruce will be there with you Joe this actually worked out pretty well for the last
3: eight months Stu and I have been bickering over who gets to go to the lovely camelback for one of the semifinal games and I said you know what Stu I'm going I'll be the bigger man I'll let you have it so I can claim something the next time around and then I find out Joe you're gonna be Atlantic home Uh, and it worked out perfectly so, Just, okay, we plan that. We will
2: send Stu a picture when we're out to dinner somewhere.
3: Yes, <laughs> yes, Stu. Yeah. I'm going to eat a great meal with Joe and probably Andy Staples. And you know what? You're going to be in some dingy Irish bar with our friend
1: Pete. <laughs> I'll be at the TP. I'll, yeah. no, I'll be sure. I'll be sure to send you guys a picture of the uh, from the pool looking out at the mountains. Is what I'll is what I'll do. No, I I don't know if it'll be that way. Um, Joe, we really appreciate you coming on. Are we going to see you anywhere on TV before the uh, oh,
2: playoff yeah. game? I think that whole week. Yeah, I think that. Not doing a bowl game. Not to, I'm just concentrating on this, but I, I'm sure that week leading up to um, Saturday, I'll be uh, you know previewing the game a lot, and then um, looking forward to it. We are the we're the three o'clock pick on ESPN that day. We get the day started, so we're. I'm also looking forward to Bruce to the watch party afterwards. We we'll are to watch the other one that night. Relax yes, sir. There. After we yeah. get done with our work. Uh, but, guys, always a pleasure. Obviously, you know how important you are to me as your friends, but always a great time catching
1: up and talking ball here. We appreciate it. All right, Joe. We'll see you soon. All right. We'll talk. Later, guys. That was fun talking to Joe. And at the very end there, it's like I almost forgot. Like, are we going to go through the whole New Year's Eve semi thing again? Are people going to watch? Or because they've already decided to go away from that after this year that that becomes a non-story uh, probably the latter i think
3: you know because i feel like we're creatures of the moment and we come even more so as we get further entrenched in social media and the echo chamber that it is right
1: yeah i mean i think you know to his point that game that's a three eastern on the 31st i don't think there's gonna be any it's a saturday i don't think there's gonna be any problems with that we'll see about the 7 p.m. Eastern on New Year's Eve game, if if moving it up an hour earlier helps. And I think also they they benefit from the fact that it's a great matchup. I mean, Clemson-Ohio State is a game a lot of star power, and everybody's going to want to watch. So I think that this year's headline will be how much the ratings went up. We'll see how that plays out. Hey, speaking of guys that generate ratings and headlines, uh, before we came on, the big news. Lane Kiffin is going to be the next coach at FAU, and... To me, this is probably where it was always headed—something like this. But I don't know. I guess we all overshot or overestimated his where his value was after three years of being an excellent offensive coordinator for Nick Saban. When the Oregon job came open, his name was rumored for that. When the LSU job came open, his name was rumored for that. Certainly, Houston, USF. I guess the lesson here is that the ads at those schools have not necessarily forgiven or forgotten the train wreck that was his USC and Tennessee head coaching stints.
3: Yeah, I mean, Stu, from what I had heard last week was when he got passed over for the Houston job and there were some concerns not just about how he would mesh with the Texas high school coaches, and that's something we talked a lot about you know, on previous uh, audibles, but also that there were some concerns about could the leadership of Houston trust him? Did they feel confident in the off-field stuff that he would work out on that front? And I think that there was real consideration from Lane Kiffin in his camp about, you know what, you just got passed over for Houston. You're not going to get USF. You know, you could go off and be offensive coordinator at LSU for a lot more money or UCLA to be closer to your, to your kids. But if you want to be a head coach, you may not be able to prove anything more unless you actually go do the job. And so he jumped at this opportunity, and uh, we'll see how it goes. I mean – I'll say this. The, the part that I'm most interested in here is the closest thing Lane Kiffin has coached at to a quote-unquote have-not program is Tennessee. And that's no have-not. That's a superpower. You know, it's, it's been a lot of USC, Tennessee for a year, and then Alabama the last three years. So FAU is a way on the other end of the spectrum. And, uh, you know, people close to Lane say, you know, he's not like Nick Saban. You know, he doesn't want 19 quality control guys. But all that support helps and all those things that I think you probably get used to change when you go to a program like
1: FAU. I think it's going to be a huge shock. It's going to be a major uh, adjustment. He's always coached places that have everything you could ask for. And you're just going to be recruiting a different level of players. This is not, let's go out and pick who we want out of the Rivals 100. But it's also not in um, some part of the country where you struggle to get players. I mean, there is no shortage of talent in his backyard, in Boca. And it'll be interesting to me to see. He's a big name, you know, among kids who are playing in high school right now. Yeah, so is Charlie Strong. And don't think Butch Davis
3: isn't a really good recruiter either. And those are the other guys who just got jobs
1: there. Well, yeah, somebody pointed that out. Just in the state of Florida as a whole, you've got now Jimbo Fisher, Jim McElwain, Mark Richt, yes. Now you've got Charlie Strong, who I think is such a good recruiter, he might threaten the big three uh, in terms of the competition there. And then I think that Kiffin and or Butch Davis might be able to steal some kids away from the UCF-USF level. We'll see.
3: I mean, I, I think you know, Butch is a great evaluator, and, and I think he proved that repeatedly. And Lane brings a level of cachet from there. So I tweeted about this earlier today. We've always had the running joke between us that every year in college football, there's the, what we would refer to as the puke bucket story, which is kind of an homage to, the, to an anecdote that seems to surface in all the Mike Stoops just got hired at Arizona stories we saw. Um, I'm very, very curious. People will flock to Boca now to see with intrigue what the heck's going on there.
1: Well, and what do you think the weekend of the national championship is going to be like when all the media are in Tampa and Charlie Strong is uh, settling into his new job there? Yeah, I mean,
3: I, look, they're, they're all at places now, all three of them, where you have to court the media a lot more. It's interesting in that Charlie, and Charlie, I think, in, you know, after seeing it up close a lot at Fox covering his games, I thought Charlie did a better job with, with handling the spotlight than a lot of people, including myself, probably thought he would with a longhorn network kind of swirling. Um, but now you're at places where you really have to help you know, kind of use that to get momentum and Lane Kiffin's going to have to be a big ambassador to FAU because they were so far off the radar for so long. I'll be honest, I actually forgot Carl Polini was the head coach there before Charlie Partridge. I'm sure a lot of people didn't even know Charlie Partridge was the head coach there.
1: Yeah, I definitely missed the Charlie Partridge era. I certainly remember that Carl Polini was there just because of the bizarre way in which that tenure ended. And then, of course, Faux Polini on Twitter is always making jokes about it. It's a 15-year-old program. It didn't exist. Howard Schellenberger started it. They've never had really had any success. Uh we'll see. You know, I think he is gonna have to try to bring publicity to FAU. I hope that he does it in a positive way and not the way he tried to get publicity when he first got to Tennessee by accusing people of cheating and whatnot.
3: Yeah, we sh- we shall see how this uh how this plays out. I I mean it's definitely there's been some interesting hires. This is the most interesting.
1: For the most part, there hasn't been that off-the-wall, where did that come from, what are they thinking, hire. Every time a school has hired a coach, I've said, good job, good get, good get, uh, Purdue, good get, Oregon. Baylor is the one that seems like kind of an odd fit, but there's you can't dispute that he is a great coach. Nobody has done the equivalent of when Kansas hired Charlie Weiss, uh, <laughs> you know, where you could see what a disaster that was going to be a million miles away so this is the one that will either turn out to be genius or blow up in their faces let's just put it that way all right Stu. uh
3: what else we want to talk to as we uh as we come out of heisman weekend
1: well you were involved in another in a a different uh trophy ceremony if i'm not mistaken that's true uh on sunday night i was fortunate enough to
3: be asked to co-host the Lott Impact Trophy, and it's named after the great Ronnie Lott. And it's, it's about not just a great defensive player, but also factors into what kind of character and leader they are. And it was a really cool event because I uh, got a chance to spend you know, a decent amount of time with the four finalists. Uh, one of them was, was Weston Steelhammer, who obviously has the best name in college football, from Air Force, who's an amazing dude. He told me actually he was close to going to play baseball at Alabama, as opposed to going in the air force, and you know that would have been interesting because my guess is he could have played both sports there, and who knows what his what his path would have been. He would have had a teammate named Jonathan Allen. He was there, and uh, you know Jonathan's already won a bunch of awards, and he was the guy I thought would win it. There was a Dory Jackson from USC, and interesting enough, even though the award is named for Ronnie Lott, no Trojan has won it, and still hasn't because Jabril Peppers from Michigan who had told me he'd already been to Charlotte for one award, Atlanta for another award show shows. And then was the, just the night before was at the Heisman he got on a plane, you know, had a 3am wake up call and came out to, to Southern California and ended up winning the award. And uh, so it was, it was an interesting event. I mean, I got to admit just like in the last month I've done some things that I never could have seen myself doing and co-hosting an award show and a black tie event was definitely would definitely fall into that category.
1: Yeah, it is crazy that they they have these guys crisscross the country. It's like you're supposed to be a college student, but then you're supposed to crisscross the country accepting all these awards. I don't know why they feel they have to make them all do it within the span of a week. With that show that was in Atlanta on Thursday, and then they go to the Heisman. And in this case, they go cross back across the country to California. It's a it's a very hectic time for these guys, and you wonder how do they find time to stay in shape and get ready for the bowl game yeah i mean on top of it jonathan allen had told me he actually graduated on
3: saturday i said what would you have done if you had because he obviously got some heisman boats so what would you have done if you got invited he goes i would have gone to the heisman you know yeah. but uh but so you know there's a lot of those factors and obviously they're all getting ready to go try to uh get ready for big either playoff games or bowl games soon too
1: all right, so we will, uh, we'll, we'll come back for one more later this week before we get into the holiday lull. And we will, of course, answer your emails on that episode. I, I see we've already got quite a few stored up. So send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And as always, if you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time.